Good afternoon, church. Welcome to Emmaus Road. We're glad to have you. Um, if this is your first time here, or if you haven't been with us in a while, we've been going through the uh, book of First Peter, the letter, actually, and we took a break last week to celebrate Easter, of course, and so now we're getting back into First Peter. This is Peter's letter to the church, to the exile believers that were at that time, and to us now as exile believers in our culture. So we're in First Peter 4, about halfway down, so First Peter 4, 12, we're going to be talking about what it means to suffer well, if you would read along with me. Beloved surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to, the, to God's will and souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, before we dive into the passage, I think uh, it'd be good to lay some groundwork in. Before we talk about what it means to suffer well, we need to know what is suffering and why do we suffer, Right? So the Greek word that is translated here in this passage is translated from the word pathema, which means something that is undergone or endured, hardship, pain, or distress. It's derived from the, the root patho or pathos, which means to whatever befalls one, right? Whatever you have to undergo. Not necessarily bad, but most of the time in the New Testament, and in this part right here, it's negative. It's in the negative sense. It's talking about pain or distress. So we can say that suffering is pain or distress, hardship. Now, before we go on further, I just want to clarify what is not suffering. There's not enough whipped cream on my coffee. That's not suffering. They forgot my french fries. That's not suffering. That's not what's in view here. Just want to clear that up. So how do we experience pain or distress, since that's our definition of suffering? We experience it externally, right? Physical, right? Broken bones, uh, soreness, cuts, appendixes or appendices. Those are, those are temporary things, right? They, they heal over time. We don't really have to do much besides just, you know, not re-injure ourselves. And then we have etern- internal or emotional pain, right? Now, this pain is a lot more long-term, right? Sometimes we don't even find healing in this life for that kind of pain, right? So we can say that we experience internal and external pain or distress. That's suffering. An example, because um, sometimes you feel one and sometimes you feel both combined. Um, if your house gets broken into, right? Not only are you robbed of your possessions, you lose your possessions, you also are robbed of your sense of security, right? There's an external pain and an internal pain with that, right? You feel both. So, we can say that suffering is physical or internal pain or distress. Now, why is there suffering, right? That's a big question for a lot of unbelievers, right? If God is a God of love and he loves us and he created us, why do we experience pain and distress? The answer is in Genesis. Let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the universe and the earth and everything in it. He then creates all the creatures and all the things that live in this world, and then he creates the pinnacle of his creation, the only thing made in his image. He creates man. He places man in the garden, and he, he looks at all of everything he's created, and he says, it is very good. God calls his creation very good. Right? It's perfect. He places Adam and Eve in the garden and gives them stewardship over the garden. Take care of it. Enjoy it. I give it to you. And he only gives them one rule. He gives them one rule. He says, you can do anything you want, anything you want, except eat of that tree over there. 
the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, right? He's given him this amazing, beautiful place with all these creations. He said, you can do anything, just don't eat that tree. Now, we all know, right? Kids are a good example, right? they never even touching that thing until you say, don't touch that, right? There's this, there's this nature in us, right, that makes us want to rebel once we go, oh, why, why can't I have that? I want that now. I, I didn't want that before. Now, we don't know exactly when, but sometime after chapter 1 and before chapter 3, one of God's angels, Lucifer, leads a rebellion against him, right? And then he takes the form of a serpent, and he ends up in the garden, and he deceives and tempts Eve to eat of the fruit of the one tree God told him not to. He deceives both Adam and Eve. They both eat of the fruit, and now comes the punishment which God promised. He said, if you eat of that tree, if you eat of that fruit, on the day that you do it, you shall surely die. He says that earlier. So now comes the punishment for that promise that he made them. Holy, so this is important. Since God is holy, he cannot tolerate to be in the presence of sin. And so he righteously keeps his promise to bring the punishment that would follow the disobedience. So now through one man's rebellion... Sin, and with sin, death, enters the world. Romans 5 says it, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So after Adam and Eve confess to the Lord, right, they hide, and then he comes, and they go out. After they confess what they've done before the Lord, God curses them. Not just them, he curses all the animals, the serpent above all of them. He then curses the woman with pain and childbirth. Sorry, women, that's our bad. And he says they will have a desire for their husband's position, right? That's the, they, want, they want to be the leader. And they want to have that position. And then he curses the ground. He curses the earth. He says it will bring forth thorns and thistles. And then he curses man. You will labor much, men, but you will harvest little for all the labor you do. And then God kicks them out of the garden. So now the world is sin-cursed, no longer perfect, death and suffering now abound. Pain and distress now abound in the world we live today. Oh, okay, cool. Hello. There we go. All right. What? Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so we live in a sinker's world now. So <laughs> Romans says, for the wages of sin is death, right? So death enters the world. So how does that affect us now, right? Why didn't God just punish Adam and Eve? We didn't, we didn't eat of the fruit of the tree of the good. The tree, eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a mouthful. So why do we suffer now? Well, we still live in a fallen world, right? The world was cursed. So we still live in a fallen world, right? So the world is still under the curse. Scripture says that for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the world is cursed. It is corrupted. Also, we are all offspring of Adam and Eve. Somewhere along the family tree, we all go back to the same mommy and daddy. Okay, Adam and Eve is everybody's great, great, great grandparent. So we inherit, all the way from Cain, their first kid, all the way to you and me, we inherit that sin nature that Adam had. So before we can start pointing fingers at Adam, we have to realize that, I think we can all admit that in our lives, we have rebelled against the Creator at least once. For me, I am a lifetime offender. And if any of you think yourself an exception, Scripture says otherwise. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it was not just because of Adam's sin, but our own. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are guilty of our own accord. Now if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for, alone for salvation as our Lord and Savior, and we accept his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave for our life, from that moment on of acceptance, we will not experience any eternal consequence of our sin. 
There is no eternal consequence for our sin anymore. However, while we are in this world, there is still an immediate temporary consequence for our sin. We still feel the effects of it, right? As an example for men, uh, when we lust, when we commit sexual sin, there is, an, there is an immediate consequence, right? We feel the shame, or I hope we feel the shame. And then it, it, for those of us who are married, it affects our relationship with our wives. For those of us who are single, it will affect any future relationship you have with a woman. And as we are at the club, which by the way is this Tuesday, it's every other Tuesday, it's at the Satterfield's house at 6.30 p.m., bring your own lawn chair, it's awesome, all men are welcome, come join us. We are learning that it also affects your brain physically, there's a physical brain effect when we sexually sin, and it reroutes neural pathways. So there's an immediate consequence for our sin, because we still live in fallen bodies and we still live in a fallen world. So that's our personal sin, that's one reason why we still suffer. Another reason is there is other people's sin, right? We can experience pain or distress because of other people's sin. An example would be someone who is abused, right? They undergo pain and distress, not because of their sin, but because of the person who is abusing them deciding to sin, right? That is someone else's sin affecting. Um, I'll use the same example from earlier, the, the sexual sin. When I commit sexual sin, my sin, I decided to sin, but my wife Hannah feels the pain and distress of it, right? She is affected by my sin, So now the common word in all of these things is sin, right? It all boils down to sin. The reason we experience external and internal pain or distress is the direct result of sin. So to recap before we get into the passage, woo, loud. What is suffering? Suffering is internal and external pain or distress. And why is there suffering? Sin, the fall. Adam's sin, our sin. So now let's get into the passage. You guys might have forgotten that we were in 1 Peter. I know it's a little lengthy, but I think it's important to get that foundation before I move on. So let's jump back into 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So the very first word we see here, beloved, we need to get context here, right? Peter is talking to the beloved, the church, right? He's talking to believers, Okay, so this is not for unbelievers, right? We just explained what is suffering, why is there suffering, but that's for everybody. That, that encircles everybody. That's why there's suffering, for everybody. But now he's going to talk specifically to the church, to believers who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Because if you aren't saved, it is possible to suffer well. However, for whose glory? To what end? We suffer well for the glory of God. Do not be surprised. When we undergo pain or distress, we should not be surprised. Why? Simply because Scripture tells us that we should not be surprised. It says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says in John 15 that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And later in 2 Timothy it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, It's not a possibility, it's an assurance. If you are wholeheartedly pursuing Christ and his kingdom, sharing the truth of the gospel with those around you, fighting your own flesh and sin to stay pure, standing on the truth in the world where they say truth is subjective, right? Never compromising, you will be persecuted. If you want an example, just read the Bible. Literally, people who follow God suffer. It's a fact, but not in vain. In Philippians 3, when Paul is speaking about suffering for Christ, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. So Paul's very clear. He, he, he doesn't allow us to think, oh, this is unique to Paul and to the apostles, to the higher Christians, right? No, he says this is normal. 
right? This is not something strange. Suffering for Christ is not strange. You should count it normal if you are a believer. We know we live in a fallen world. We know we have sinned, and we know why there is suffering. So now, what is the best way to not be surprised by suffering when suffering comes? To expect it, right? But I want to go a step further and say that if we should expect suffering, then we should prepare for it. Now, how do we prepare for suffering? For that, I'm actually going to jump over to Philippians 3. We're going to spend a lot of time in Philippians 3. I'm also going to borrow heavily from a sermon I read this week, which was great. So I'm just going to share with you what was shared with me. So Paul begins in Philippians 3 by saying that if anyone has a right to boast in the flesh, right, anything in themselves to boast, he then goes on to list all of his accomplishments, right, all of his distinctives, all the things that make him great in the world's eyes, all the things he enjoyed before he became a Christian, his ethnic pedigree, his being circumcised, the son of Abraham, a Hebrew of Hebrews, an Israelite. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. These things brought Paul great gain in his life. They gave him a sense of significance and assurance. This was what gave him meaning. This was his fortune, his joy. This was, this was his life. The things that mattered to him most was that he was part of the upper class of law keepers, right? He was so passionate about it that he led the way in persecuting the church and that he kept the law so meticulously that he considered himself blameless. He was amazing in God's sight, or at least so he thought, right? Because we know that when he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus, right, the Lord meets him and Paul sees Christ for the first time, helps him. There Paul gives his life to Christ and then Christ tells him how much you're going to suffer for me. And so Paul prepares himself for that suffering. So how did Paul prepare himself for that suffering? In Philippians 3, Paul, he counts all of his prior values as lost. After listing all of the things that he used to put value in, the glory and the praise of being at the height of religious society, the pride of his rigorous law-keeping, what he found in his identity and all these things he takes, and he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So imagine a piece of paper, right, or, or a ledger of some sort, right? And there's a line drawn down the middle. You have two columns, right? So Paul has this little book. It has two columns. On one column, it says gains. On the other column, it says losses. Now, on the loss side, this is before, before Paul became a Christian. On the loss side, actually, I'll start with the gain side. On the gain side, he had all these awesome things that we just listed off, right? All of his, the things that made him awesome, why he's so significant. And then on the loss side, he has one thing, and it's this new Jesus movement, and the possibility that it could get out of hand and Jesus could prove to be real and win the day. Now, when he met the Lord in Damascus and gave his life, Paul flipped the script. He wrote in big letters across his gains column, loss, and wrote across his loss column, gain. He flips the script. Everything he used to count as valuable, he now counts as rubbish. And the one thing or one person that he used to count as loss is now he sees it as his only gain. Paul goes on to say that not only are most of his precious, not, not only are his most precious accomplishments loss, but that I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So not only does he count all these things that he used to hold in so high esteem, he counts everything, everything except Christ as lost. And that's how we should view it too, right? He says further down in Philippians 3, he says, brothers, join in imitating me, right? I used that earlier. So this is how we are to prepare for suffering. He says, this is how I prepared for suffering. Join me in doing it. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Boy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here we see that becoming a Christian should mean that discovering, when we discover Christ, he is a treasure chest or a pearl of greatest value, so valuable that we are willing to give up everything in order to gain it, right? The man, he sold everything so that he could have that field that had the treasure chest in it. The man sold everything so he could have that pearl. Jesus also says, giving up all of our possessions and everything this world has to offer is is how we gain Christ. Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost of our discipleship, right? He, He tells us to count everything as lost except for me. So then what does that look like for us practically, right? Does that mean that we throw everything away, which I will admit on several occasions has been my response to things like this. I'm very much, I need to get rid of everything. I'm so bad. Um, To my wife's dismay, she can attest to that. But uh, do we sell our house and become homeless? No, no, that's not what it's saying. So then what does that mean for us practically? It means four things. That whenever we are called to choose between anything in this world and Christ, we choose Christ. It means that when pain and distress enter my life, we will deal with a way that draws us nearer to Christ. Thirdly, it means that when we deal with things in this world, we will do it in such a way that shows the world around us that we do not find our treasure in the world, but that we find our treasure in Christ. And lastly, it means that if we lose any or all of the things that this world can give us, we will not lose our joy, we will not lose our hope, we will not lose our life, right? Because Christ is all. When we count everything, everything as lost except Christ, then, when, then when, when the time does come, when Christ does call us to forfeit those things, when we undergo pain and distress, it is not strange, it is not unexpected, we are prepared to, live, to lose it. We are prepared to forfeit it. So do not be surprised by pain or distress, but be prepared for it. Moving on, verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. So when we suffer, we undergo pain and distress for Christ's name. Rejoice. That should be a response, to rejoice. Now this verse right here, this is talking about a very specific type of suffering, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to take a sidestep here and just talk about all the many other reasons, not all of them, it's not exhaustive, some of the many we have to rejoice in suffering. Because this passage is talking about a very specific one, but I just want to just tell you for your own encouragement, all the other reasons we have to rejoice in suffering. So for believers, right, after we've accepted Christ, right, God now has a purpose in our suffering, right? He is not wasteful. He is not inefficient. He gets the most mileage out of our situations, right? The pain and hardship we face may be a result of sin generally, right? But God can still use that for his purpose, for our benefit, which is ultimately to his glory. There is a purpose in our pain. So let's talk about it. Reasons to rejoice in suffering. A reason to rejoice is that pain is God's megaphone. He uses it. He can use it sometimes when we're not focused on him, right? When we look to the world for satisfaction and contentment, right? Fulfillment. He graciously reminds us through pain and suffering where only true contentment can be found, right? Because when we suffer and we go to the world, they're not enough, right? Another reason to rejoice is when we undergo pain and distress, we are reminded that there's a consequence to sin, right? We are reminded about how bad sin is. 
we are reminded that we live in a sin-fallen world, that we live in sin-cursed bodies, and that we are guilty of that sin. And the plus side to that is that it reminds us that our Heavenly Father gave His only Son to save us from that guilt. When we undergo pain and distress as a result of God's correction, another reason, we are reminded that we are His children. It is a reminder. It is a, it is a certificate of legitimate sonship. Scripture says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us because he is determined to sanctify us to make us more like Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Another reason to rejoice is suffering equips us for ministry. God is the God of all comfort, Scripture says, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I'll use an example to clear that one up. Twelve years ago, when Mike and Jen's son Luke was stillborn, right? They had no idea, 12 years ago, they had no idea that years down the road, God would use that circumstance. He would use that suffering to comfort Hannah and I when the same exact thing happened to our first son. God used their suffering to equip them for future ministry. Another reason to rejoice, sometimes the only answer to why is this happening to me is for the sole purpose of bringing God glory. Like the blind man in John, the disciples asked Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it because of the man's sin or his parents, right? Because they used to think if you suffer, it's because of sin, right? Or, I mean, it is, but you know what I mean. <laughs> successful people were, were, were blessed by God and unsuccessful people weren't. But, and Jesus says to them, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The man was not blind. The pain and distress that he underwent for being blind was not because of his parents' sin. It was not because of his own sin. It was literally only for the purpose of God's glory that Jesus would heal him. Ultimately, all of these reasons that we have to rejoice are only reasons because of one thing, and that is because they bring God glory. God's pain is his glory, and it's the reason that we rejoice in our suffering. Now back to the verse. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So back to the specific suffering that this verse is talking about. It's talking about rejoicing when we share in Christ's suffering. So what does that mean then, to share in Christ's suffering? Well, how did Christ suffer? He was mocked, he was rejected, he was betrayed, and eventually he was crucified. Why did Jesus suffer? He suffered for doing God's work, right? He, he, he did it because of our sin, for obeying the voice of the Father, for doing the right thing, for doing good. That is the reason that Jesus suffered. When we undergo pain and distress as a result of obeying God's commands, we have reason to rejoice. That's what this verse is saying, to share in Christ's sufferings. So what does that mean to share in Christ's sufferings? There is an intimacy with Christ that only comes about when we share in his sufferings. God shows us in his word that through pain and distress, we are meant to go deeper into relationship with him, not farther as it sometimes does, right? We get to know Christ better when we share his pain. I think of my my good friend Christopher, who actually happens to be here today. He and I meet weekly as much as we can for the last few years. It's been a blessing. We share life together, and uh, I have come to know him very deeply. Uh, But he lost his older brother last summer. And when when he mourns, 
I agonize over the fact that I can't understand him in that specific way to the depths that I'm used to experiencing life with him. I desire to understand my brother and the pain that he's going through because I love him dearly. But since I haven't undergone that same type of pain, I haven't shared in that suffering, my understanding only goes so far. And I'm always, always left wishing I could mourn with him better, know him deeper. The same goes for Christ. When we share in his suffering, we have an opportunity to know him deeper. This is why Paul in Philippians 3 counts everything as loss. And it is the same reason why we rejoice, right? Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says that I may be found in him, that to have his righteousness, that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection. We all want that. That I may share his sufferings, that I become like him in his death. I don't know if we all want that. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. We count everything as loss to know him better, right? When we share in his pain, it causes us to hope more in God and to put less confidence in the worldly things but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we share in his sufferings and we rejoice in them so that we may also rejoice when his glory is revealed, right? Romans 8 says we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So why must we suffer with him, right? Why, why must we suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with him? Going back to the garden, God is holy, right? He cannot tolerate to be in the presence of sin. We are still in sinful bodies. In this life, we still have sin. We are holy positionally, right? Positionally, in God's eyes, eternally, we are holy. We are innocent. We are covered with the blood of Christ. We are righteous, right? But experientially, in our lives, I'm not holy. I'm not perfect. We are still experiencing sin, right? The sin extracted from our bodies. We have to go through the refining fire, right? We have to be purified in order in order that we may in order that we may have fellowship with God, right? In order that we may dwell with him in heaven. We have to be rid of this sin. We have to go through the refining fire to be purified. Romans 6 says it better. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We have to die to our sin in order to live with Christ. For I consider, Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is beyond worth it. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So when you suffer for Christ, not only are you to rejoice, you are blessing. First Peter says, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And in Acts 5, after being imprisoned for preaching the gospel and then set free in the night by an angel, the apostles are then brought again the next day before the high council and are yet again told, do not preach the gospel. To which Peter replies, we must obey God rather than men. 
They are then beaten and charged not to preach the gospel anymore. And after being beaten, they leave the council chambers, and Scripture says that they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They counted a privilege and an honor that they were counted worthy to suffer. It's something you have to be able to suffer for Christ. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Here Peter gives a warning, right? He's just, he's cautioning believers to not suffer for doing evil. It is still possible for believers to suffer for doing wrong, right? (laughs) Even the best of men still make horrible sins like murder, right? Do not let the accusations, Peter's saying, do not let the accusations which the world will bring against us be true, right? Even the best of men, even Peter, even Paul, all the apostles still need to be warned that sin is still possible and they can still commit this sin. They don't want, they don't want to prove the world right, right? They don't want to suffer for doing evil. And First Peter earlier says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? There is no comfort when we endure suffering that we have brought upon ourselves because of our own wrongdoing, right? There's no, that's not the same comfort we have when we suffer for our righteous sake, for Christ's sake. We must make sure that when we undergo pain and distress, that it is not self-inflicted and deserving. Matthew Henry says that it is not the suffering, but the cause that makes the martyr. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do not be persecuted for Christ's sake, like the apostles, right? Count yourself blessed to have such an honor as being worthy to suffer for his name. Um, John Huss, um, he was a pre-Reformation reformist, right? So before Martin Luther, 100 years before Martin Luther. But he, he, he was carrying the same ideas as John Wycliffe. He came shortly after John Wycliffe and followed in his footsteps of preaching and writing about the same doctrines Doctrines which were true to Scripture, but which went against the Roman Catholic Church at the time, right? They had a lot of things wrong. And so his teachings spread and catch fire, and all these people are starting to listen to his sermons and read his writings and be like, man, this is, this is so true. The Roman Catholic Church has it so messed up, which catches the attention of the Pope. So the Pope then sends a commission for him before the council in Rome. John Huss doesn't go, and so he is expelled from his church. He is excommunicated along with all of his followers from Prague, where his church was, And so he leaves and retires back to his hometown, but continues to write. Now that pope died, and in 1414, they held a general council under the disguise that they were trying to dispute, figure out a dispute between the three people that were now contending for the the papacy, for the next pope, right? And so they used this as a smokescreen because they really wanted to crush this little movement that was beginning to start. So they invite, they appeal to John Huss and tell him, you need to come before the council. And the emperor sends an incentive. He says, I will give you a safe conduct, which is a immune harm or arrest during travel. So they want to get John Huss in there, and the emperor says, okay, here, here's a safe conduct. They won't arrest you or harm you. Please come before the council. So John Huss goes to Constance in Germany, where the council is. And then once the council discovers that he's in Constance, they go and immediately arrest him. They bring him before the council, and the charges against him were read. Upwards of 40 charges were read against him, all of them extracted from his writings. John Huss then, after hearing all of his charges, appeals to a higher judge, the highest. He says, I appeal to Christ. He claims, what better appeal is there when before Huss stood corrupt judges? He says, who is then a higher judge than Christ? 
who, I say, can nowhere judge the matter more justly or with more equity, when in him there is found no deceit, neither can he be deceived? Or who can better help the miserable and oppressed than he? Now, when, when, the, uh, when the council members heard this, they were obviously enraged, and uh, they strip him of his robes, they degrade him, they place a miter, which is a bishop's headdress, they place a miter on his head, and on the miter there are paintings of devils, on this matter that they put on his head, with the inscription, ringleader of heretics. So when John Huss sees this devil-painted hat that they put on him, he, he responds, he says, My Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake, crown of thorns, why should not I, for his sake, again wear this light crown, be it ever so shameful or disgraceful? Truly I will do it, and that willingly. When the hat was set upon his head, the bishop said, Now we commit thy soul to the devil. But I, says John Huss, do commend into thy hands, O Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit which thou hast redeemed. When the chain was put him about the stake, John Huss said with a smiling countenance, My Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this for my sake. And why then should I be ashamed of this rusty one? When the wood was piled up to his neck, the Duke of Bavaria condescendingly asked Huss to renounce his claim. And he said, I never preached any doctrine of an evil tendency, and what I taught with my lips I now seal with my blood. He was then burned at the stake, and the records say that he was heard reciting psalms as he died. John Huss was not ashamed of suffering for Christ. He gave glory to God, as did many others who came before him. He counted it an honor to be worthy for suffering for Christ. He counted it an honor. I get to wear this crown. I get to have these shackles. We are surrounded, Scripture says, by so great a cloud of witnesses. In Hebrews 11, the writer lists all of these heroes in the Old Testament. People like Gideon and David, who did glorious things in God's name. And then he shifts half the list to the heroes that we don't hear enough about. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Worthy to suffer for Christ, not worthy of the world. Moving on, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not love God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When God brings judgment or calamity, historically, he generally brings, he generally begins with his people. Not always, but a good chunk of the time, he begins with his people. So right now, being the household of God, right, being his household, we experience God's active discipline, right, while we're here on earth. We're being purified of our sin, right? It is a temporary purifying, right? It will not last very long in, compared to eternity. Our life on earth is short. The pain and distress that we undergo is short in comparison to those who do not obey the gospel of God. Our trials and our corrections are temporary. Suffering is eternal. Psalm 34 says that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. We will be delivered out of the afflictions that we face now. Followers of Christ, we have our worst things in this life. This is not our best life now. If it was, that would be horrible. For the unsaved, 
They have their best life now. The worst is yet to come. Therefore, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering well all comes down to one thing, trusting God. Do you trust him? Do you believe that he is a just God? Do not worry about being wrongfully accused. Do not worry about being mocked. Do not worry about being beaten or killed for wrongdoing that you haven't done. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When you suffer for Christ's sake, do not fear those who persecute you. Peter and the apostles did not fear the Jewish council. John Huss did not fear the Roman Catholic Church. But when you do undergo pain and distress, follow the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the only one who was in the right, the only one in all of earth's history who had just reason to declare his innocence and to condemn those who were putting him to death, but he didn't. Scripture says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Commit your souls to God. Do you trust the creator? It doesn't matter if the whole world thinks you're wrong, if the whole world thinks you did some horrible thing. Like John Huss said, God God is my witness. He is our only witness. He knows what I have done. He knows what I am doing. Does God see me in the right? Commit your souls to God. We know what suffering is. We know why there is suffering. So do not be surprised by it. We are to expect it and prepare for it. When you suffer for good, rejoice. There's a future glory that awaits beyond comparison. And count it an honor and a blessing when you suffer for the name of Christ. But be careful, though. Do not suffer for doing wrongdoing. But as you suffer for doing good, do not be ashamed of it, but glorify God through it. For this temporary affliction will soon pass. Therefore, entrust your soul to the Creator and the Judge. This is what it means to suffer well. But I want to end on a very specific note. If you forget the rest of what I've spoken, that's fine. Just remember this. The most important aspect to suffering well, I believe, has to do with how we view the suffering that we undergo. And as it pertains to us now. So as it pertains to us now, right, the most important thing in our, in our lives, second only to God's glory, is our relationship with God. Would you agree? That being said, I don't think that we can afford to miss the way suffering can bring us into deeper relationship with, with him, right? Like I talked about the intimacy in Philippians 3, right? So this is the, the point I want to focus on, um, that there's an intimacy with Christ that we can only receive when we share in his pain and distress. To suffer well, we need to view suffering the correct way, which is an opportunity to know Christ deeper. It's the difference between knowing and hearing and knowing and seeing. I'll give an example. Um, about a month and I got married, uh, she started to show symptoms of pregnancy. So we excitedly went to the store and bought four pregnancy tests, used them all, we were excited, and uh, we waited anxiously, three minutes or you know, whatever, however much time it says to wait for the lines to show up. And we lifted our hands to see that the test was showing that it was positive. We were pregnant. We were going to have a baby. So from that point on, we knew that there was a baby inside of Hannah, growing and developing. And eventually, later on, we got to hear the baby's heartbeat. We got to hear the heartbeat. So now we had this little sound of a heartbeat to go along with the baby we already knew existed. Now we knew that our baby was in there and we could listen to his heartbeat, 
But it wasn't until I first kick, until I felt the movement of life, that it became more real than it had ever been. We really did have a baby, and not that we were ever doubting of the fact that we had a baby, but it deepened our connection to the baby to, to see the kick, right? To, to, to see the evidence of life. It bolstered our assurance of his existence. And when he was born, and when we held him in our hands, seeing his little body, although his life had already left him, it became even more real than just feeling his kick, right? We have a son. We saw how precious he was. We could see him, all his little intricacies and all his details. And now with Asher, we get to see even more. We get to have him, actually. There was a difference between knowing there was a baby and hearing and then seeing the baby and we had a baby. To use a biblical example, one that's actually about suffering, Job. Job had seven sons, three daughters. He had thousands of sheep, thousands of camels, hundreds of oxen. He was a wealthy, prosperous man. On top of all his success, he was also pleasing to the sight of God. He was in right standing with God. God calls Job blameless and upright, a man who fears God. Then God allows Satan to take everything away from Job, right? Calamity takes all of his children at once and takes all of his property and wealth. And Job responds by worshiping God and saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God allows Satan to take more. He takes Job's health, right? Scripture says that his friends didn't even recognize him because he was so in such bad health physically that his friends didn't even recognize him. And time sets in, right? And Job begins to lament his birth. Why was I even born? He begins to give in to his suffering. For an untold amount of months, we don't really know. It's just, they use the word months. And so we know there's a certain time of months that he was suffering before God finally answers him out of the whirlwind, right? So after months of suffering and God's direct correction, Job confesses, he repents of his response to the suffering, he, of what he thought he knew of God and finds deeper intimacy with God. He says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job knew God. He had heard God's word. He was in good standing. He believed in God, but it took the suffering for him to see more truly who God actually was to know him better. After we lost Ephraim, for the first few weeks, Hannah, she she knew that God had a purpose. She had heard God's word all her life about God's promise and his purpose in suffering. But then the weeks turned into months and the loneliness and depression set in and she became scared of God. It took five months of suffering for her to see God for who he really is, to see God more she is her anchor. And now she has a more intimate relationship because of it, right? Something like that won't shake her again the way it did the first time. The closest I have ever felt to God in my life was the week after my son died. I saw his glory. I saw God's glory in Ephraim's death. I saw his comfort in the loved ones around us. I had heard, I had known about the power of prayer, but it wasn't until then that I actually felt it. I saw it. I could feel the Lord's arms around us. I could feel people praying for us. The apostles and Paul, they suffered their whole lives after Christ. And we regard them, especially people like Paul, right? As being champions of the faith. People who had a more intimate relationship with Christ. Well, of course they did. They suffered a lot. And in their suffering, they got to know Christ more. Stephen, the first martyr, after preaching from Genesis to the cross to the Jewish Pharisees, was dragged out and stoned to death. But as he was being dragged out, Scripture says he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
You see, when we suffer for good, when Stephen suffers for good, he followed Christ. He had heard of Christ. He believed in Christ. But it wasn't until he gave his life for Christ that he saw him in his suffering. He got to see him. You see, when we suffer for good, when we share in his pain and his distress, we get to know God better because we get a glimpse of what he went through, right? Just a glimpse. And the more suffering that we receive from him, the more of his suffering we get to understand, right? We pray I want to know you more, God. I want to know you more. But do we really mean that? Do we know what we're asking of God when we say that, when we ask, God, I want to have intimacy with you? And then we are shocked when God says, okay, I'll answer you. I'll be faithful to answer. You want to be deeper in a relationship with me? Okay. Suffering. Suffering. This is really hard, God, but I know that you love me. Please, I just want to know you more. I want to know the depths of your love. Suffering suffering, suffering. This is really hard, God. I know you have a purpose. I just want to know you more. Suffering, suffering. God, I don't, this is happening to me. I don't, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't see your plan. Suffering, suffering. God, God, why have you forsaken me? Suffering, suffering. Lord, I can't take it anymore. And then God tells us, I took that and more for you. Suffering, suffering. Let me show you how bad sin is. Suffering, suffering. Let me show you how good I am. Suffering, suffering, suffering. Do you see now? I was despised and rejected by men. I was mocked. I was beaten. I was pierced for your transgressions. I was crushed. I was betrayed. I was abandoned. I drank the cup. I suffered the cross. You wanted to know the depths of my love, Matthew. My son died too. The more we share in Christ's sufferings, the more more we get to know of his love for us. So we suffer well. Jesus says... I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, because in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome. Let us pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for your word, that we have it to go to, and I want to thank you for suffering, Father. You have given a way for us, even though it's really hard, to know you deeper, to know you better, to know what you did for us, Father. That's That's what it does. So I just thank you for the opportunity we get in this life to just know a glimpse of how much you love us. I pray that you just be with us this week. Bless this week, Father. We would dwell on you. And that when suffering comes, Father, that we would remember this scripture, Father. We would remember we are to expect it and we are to endure it with rejoicing and get to know you deeper. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.